1: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tim Arsenault has a laugh that you won't forget and a cast you'll want to master. An avid angler and competitor at the popular Rama casting event, he has made a much deserved name for himself as one of North America's top casters. Tim is the founder of Bridge Fly Lines and the manager of Vancouver's Michael and Young Fly Shop. In this episode of Anchored, Tim shares the story of how he got started fishing and eventually competing. We discuss the stresses behind starting a fly line company and take a closer look at some of the advanced casting techniques that Tim uses for distance. I'll be posting this episode up on YouTube if you prefer to watch Tim's forum while you listen. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and their incredible hunting opportunities. In South Dakota, hunting is a shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why they're focused on making their fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at huntthegreatestsd.com where you can hear stories from sportsmen and women and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and seasonal information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at www.huntthegreatestsd.com. You're not really one to talk about yourself, so I figure I'm going to just pin you down. Literally okay. stick you in a corner and ask you questions.
2: <laughs> okay, sure. Fire away. <laughs> I'll do my right. best.
1: We'll start where we start, everyone. So, where were you born and raised?
2: I was born in Summerside, uh, Prince Edward Island, in 1978 in August. Uh, but my parents moved us to to Calgary at a pretty young age. I, th- I think I did preschool there, but I've spent pretty much my entire adult life here in well, entire childhood and adult life in British Columbia. Uh, We lived in South Surrey uh, for a while and then moved uh, into sort of the Cloverdale area, cloverdale Langley area. And I kind of grew up in that area for most of my teenage years and into my early 20s. And now I live downtown Vancouver.
1: Right. So how did the whole fishing thing start?
2: Yeah, that's a funny story. So, um, I mean, my parents aren't, they're not like outdoor people. Um, they've never been big on camping or fishing or anything like that. Good folks, but that just was never their thing. Uh, but, you know, when we were quite young, we'd, we would find our way down to the <clears throat> local streams in South Surrey to sort of throw worms on the bottom with spinning rods and stuff like that. So there was a there was always like a little element of huh, fishing, but it never really started until um, like in, in any kind of serious way. Until I met, uh, my friend. Well, I'd known him for a couple of years, my friend Matt in high school. And, uh, he, I don't know how, I mean, it must have been his birthday or something, but he, he had a car before everybody else. And so, um, my mom, my mom always called him Eddie Haskell because he'd, he'd come into my mom's house and kind of be like, Oh, Mrs. Arsenault, what, what, what do you have? Co- oh, you, what, what's that? I smell cooking. You have such a wonderful home. And then the second she'd turn her back, he'd, you know. Let's skip school and go do this or that. Right. So, so anyway, he, the way it kind of started was, um, he wanted to skip school and go fishing. And then I didn't have any of the real fishing gear for the real rivers. Um, and so he, um, he would always have his dad's stuff sort of in the trunk of that car. And, uh, so we started out doing that. And then, um, you know, we both probably had, we took the, <laughs> we took a, you know, the, the different route in life where we, we both got kicked out of school. Um, and, uh, you know, I got sentenced to sort of the bad kid program and, um, he showed up there a couple months later and then, uh, we picked up right where we lost. I'm skipping that to go, to go fishing. And then, and then I, I finished school later on, on my own accord, but it was, uh, that's sort of how it all started for sure. And it was pretty, it was pretty, Casual at first, but then as time went on, it, yeah, like as as anyone probably listening to this podcast would know, it sort of gets into your blood a little bit. Mm -hmm.
1: And then the fly fishing thing, was that your buddy as well? Or was that just a natural progression for you?
2: Uh, He definitely was the first one to expose me to it. Um, He had an old Sage RPL nine foot five weight, and I tried casting it a couple times. Um, but no, I just found it naturally. It just, it just sort of came along probably at, when, when it does for everyone, you've done a bunch of gear fishing, you know, steelhead was steelhead and salmon, but in particular steelhead was a, a big thing for me. And so, um, like I, you know, I, I used to fish quite a bit with, with, with gear for them. And then of course, um, when you, when you catch quite a few and back, back when I was doing that, there was, there was quite a few fish around. And if you were there all the time, you'd, you'd catch it, uh, more than a few usually. So I wanted a harder way to do it, and fly fishing seemed to to be a good way to to get that.
1: <clears throat> so your first steelhead trip then, or your first successful steelhead trip, was that the Vetter, the Chilliwack, the Thompson? No, that, Where were
2: you? No, that was a Summer on Steelhead on the Chehalis. Yeah, Chehalis all River right. Mission. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, hiked into the canyon, and we were fishing bait in there, and uh, ended up getting a fish in there, and that's what started it all, yeah.
1: Oh, uh, no wonder why you're hooked. That's crazy. It's super magical in there.
2: Yeah, it's super are we allowed, it's super to, are we allowed cool. to
1: talk about that? I wonder if I should not be uh, No, it's horrible. Uh, it's, it's awful. It's
2: terrible. No Don't fish go there. In that river. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing there. Yeah, plus I'm I'm not in any shape to hike into it anymore, so it's <laughs> pretty pretty canyonous place, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not easy. I just yeah. remember you being in the blue jeep. Do you remember your blue yeah, that, jeep? Yeah,
2: hundred percent. And the...
1: <laughs> you were a menace. I saw you everywhere. Everywhere I was fishing, there was Tim in his blue jeep. Yeah.
2: Blue jeep. Yeah. So I love you that would thing.
1: have. Been... <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> I don't know why. This is going to be really bad. What I'm about to say. And okay. Don't. I'm sorry in advance, but oh, it's okay. I always thought you were like this goody kid. I would never have lumped you in the bad kid program.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess at that point I'd found fishing. I was pretty, pretty happy, <laughs> but I mean, I've always been happy. I just got around. I probably hung out with some of the, the wrong kids, Yeah. but you know what? It's, um, that's how you get the fun stories. Right. So.
1: Right. It's water under the bridge, which actually I'm excited to talk to you about, um, the
2: okay.
1: bridge for people oh, listening yeah. right now who don't know what I'm referring to. It'll make sense in just a minute, but first, <laughs> so the Thompson, tell me about your first trip up to the Thompson.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember the first trip to the Thompson. I think that was like, I think it was like 2000 I went to the Thompson and we had heard like I used to fish at Gill's Tackle and uh, fish. I used to shop at Gill's Tackle and Langley and I'd hear the guys working in there uh, talk about it. And um, and then my friend had been shopping at at Fred's a bunch and he had ended up going with Peter McPherson, who worked at Fred's for a lot of years. Love and as Peter. soon as he got back, he told me he went and I was like, Oh man, like you got to take me, like, you know, you got to, you got to take me up there. Um, cause it always had so much lore. You'd hear so much about it. And then, uh, and then we went and it was super cold. Uh, you know, I was fishing with a 10 foot eight weight. Um, <laughs> we caught nothing. In fact, it took me. I think it took me about four years to get that first fish. Um, and it's not an easy, like it's not a, it's a funny place because every year that I would go back, I'd always kind of be like, Oh man, I can't wait to get back there. I can't, I can't wait. Like it's going to be so great. Like that's, that's my home. That's, that's my, my favorite place to be. And then after about three days of fishing it, um, your knees and your ankles and your hips and no fish and the wind. And nowhere to eat. And like and you're just like, man, I why do I like this place so much? Right? You know, it was always uh like a rough place to be. But that first trip, uh yeah, I, I quickly found out how slippery it was. Um and actually I got a funny I got a funny picture from that first trip. Um it was Matt again, the the guy who I had originally fished with that I'd gone up with. And we had gone, we didn't know where to go. Peter had showed him a few spots, but we didn't know the names of any of them or anything. And you know, it was really cold and the river was really low. And so we pulled into the Y run parking lot and the river was low and and the, the top corner looked really good. Like it always does. So we were like, oh man, that looks pretty good. And I think Matt had already almost fallen in once. So we were kind of like, that oh, looks a little bit easy. Like maybe we won't have to get in so deep to fish it. And uh, he went out and caught this this really nice resident trout. It wasn't, you know, and as you know, April, there's really nice trout in there as well. And sometimes they kind of fool you when, when you're there fishing in the fall. And um, so he got that fish and he held it up. And he was working at a fireplace door manufacturer at the time. And he, uh, see, so you could smoke in there, you know, this back in the days where you could smoke just about anywhere. And I'll never forget. <laughs> he got in the car that morning and he had a huge burn between his eyes, a huge blister. And I guess, uh, he was doing something. He had his safety goggles down around his chin. He was doing something at work and they flipped up and he had a cigarette in his mouth and pinned it right between his eyes. So I got this picture of him with this trap, with this giant, giant uh, blister right between his eyes. Yeah. So, so, so I still got that picture. That's a good one. But, uh, but I kept going back and it, it took a number of years, but I, I finally, got a fish and then and then there was a few more after that and uh and and loved loved fishing there you know i think you would probably agree that that place if you were there enough it kind of it kind of shaped like it, i i guess i can only speak for myself it kind of shaped who i am as an angler and and probably during those years you know when you're that age or whatever it's probably the persistence you need to 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 uh catch fish there or to just stick it out until something comes along um Probably shapes you a little bit as a, as a person as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Where did you used to stay?
2: I used to stay at Vera's. So, like, um, oh. I don't know if you remember, but beside. Uh,
1: yes, it's you. Yeah. You're the yeah. reason. So, yeah. the reason I started staying at the hilltop was because I went into the log cabin pub, and John and Lori yeah. were like, it's my first time up there. They're going, You're yeah. not staying. Well, it wasn't, it was my first time steelhead fishing. I used to sleep in my car when I'd go trout fishing in the summer, but it was cold. Right. They said, You're not staying at the hilltop. We're gonna call Vera. Yeah. And Vera had steelheaders already booked in mm-hmm. and uh couldn't get me in. And it was a good me it was,
2: romping on up. It was a good spot. Um she she's got this like mag um she's passed now, but she had this magnificent log cabin kinda right beside I think it was like kinda right beside rumors in town there. And um yeah. between log cabin and rumors and uh she had this giant basement suite that had It had like, must've had seven or eight beds in it anyway. And then there was satellite TV. Oh yeah. And then there was, um, there was uh, a big barbecue out back. She had a giant parking lot. So if anyone wanted to or like a driveway or whatever, so if anyone wanted to bring their, um, to bring their boat or whatever it was, um, there was a lot of room for it. Um, and it was great. She was really, she was really a funny lady and opened our home to us. And, um, and it was a good spot for sure. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of just day trips too. I, like a lot of people who know me to go up there. Um, I'd work so much that, you know, a lot of times I'd only get sort of like a Saturday. So I would get up at sort of like 3.30 in the morning and rip up to Spencer's Bridge and fish all day and then turn around and come back. And people are always kind of like, why do you do that? And I'd be like, well, I if I don't do it, I don't fish. So I'm going to do it, right? So, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. It's all, all the little pieces that I've known about you over the years are all kind of coming together, which is kind of fun because you know, you're a super fishy guy. And so I was always quite surprised to hear that you took on competition casting. And a lot of people tuning in right now may have, may know of you through that scene. And and I think com- competitive, you know, competitive casters get lumped into this category of not really being anglers. And I don't. I don't think that's necessarily fair. And I, I wanted to navigate those waters with you here a little bit. So, what, I mean, what what got you into it? What was the big reason that you decided to start fishing competitions and casting long lines?
2: Um, just a uh, um. I guess like I like a lot of my students or people I've taught or even people I've talked to uh, in the shop over the years. A lot of times I I say that spay casting kind of ruined my life. Um, the first good cast I had, which was not long after I got my first setup, um, like there was just something that popped in my brain and I'm just one of those people. I just can't, I don't get to choose what I like. Like it just, whatever it is, it, it just, just sort of pops out of nowhere. And then, and then, uh, I like, I'm just one of those people that tends to, to follow that. And so, um, with the casting, um, You know, the casting was just always a really part of a big part of the whole whole thing, the whole package of it. Like um, the first time I saw someone fly cast, I definitely kind of took notice of that. And I mean, I just knew how beautiful it sort of looked. And there was a whole mystique to it that that was really interesting. And then the first time I saw a guy with a two handed rod, um, that really that was like, whoa, holy, like I was fishing on I was fishing in the canal. Um, and it was probably like in March or April, it was a really nice day. And this guy just sort of like came down the other bank, uh, one of the steep banks with this really super long rod. And it looked almost like an Islander steelheader center pin, but it, looking back, it must've been like an Islander FR2 or just a big gold sort of reel. And I didn't think much of it. I just thought I was center pin guy or whatever. And. And he 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 got in there and and um yeah I'd never seen anything like it like that he'd just kind of do these magical little sweeps of the rod and whoever he was I'd love to know because he was really good um and and those reels had really loud checks on them so so it's funny he got down there and I wasn't really paying attention I'm just sort of fishing and I just I can hear him pulling line off and then I, I was kind of a little bit confused because then I kind of thought maybe it was a fly rod but the rod looked really big. And then I just kind of went back to fishing and I heard a reel, the reel go kind of like, eh, and I, I kind of like glanced down and I saw his, his cast turning over near the far bank. And it was the, I mean, he was such a good caster that it was the reel or the line just sort of hitting the reel. And I remember just watching him go down the run as the sun sort of went down. And every time this guy would cast, it was just like, eh, 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 and it's just sailing across the river. And so I, I was like, what the heck is that? I've never seen anything like that before. So I I ran into Michael and young and Dave was there and and I was kind of like, man, what, what was that? What was that? Right. And so he, he described it to me. And so then I had to have one. And then, and then when I got one, um, like I fell in love with it right away. And then that first good cast, really something switched in my brain. And, and it wasn't just the fishing at that point anymore. It was the casting. I always liked single-handed casting, but it was spay casting that really kind of changed it for me. And then, um, and then anything, I mean, for me, any anyway, the things that I love, I just, I want to learn more about them. Um, so going and competing in tournaments was really a way for me to um, just get, like, try and learn about what it is that I like so much and and to try and just be better at it.
1: Obviously, you've heard people say that caster, casters and fishers are two separate things. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I've seen that. For sure. Like, um, there's this guy, really great guy, amazing caster. Um, his name's Rory Costello. He doesn't, he doesn't compete anymore. You might've even met him, April. He's an Irish guy. Cause I'd seen you at Spearama a, a couple of times. Um, but he, he, he kind of stopped competing a few years back, but you know, he fished, but not with a two handed rod. And, um, like he got like third and I think second one year. And and I would always talk to him and just be like, Oh yeah, no, have you like do you fish salmon? You're in Ireland and no, no. And I'd be like, Well, why? He's like, Ah, oh, it just never interested me. <laughs> just okay, like I you know, but he was a big brown trout fisherman and he had a lock uh very close to his place. Um and he was just fanatical about this Mayfly hatch that would happen on this lock, and he loved brown trout fishing. But he was a guy who was one of the, easily one of the best casters in the world and had no interest in fishing a two-handed rod for anadromous species. So I never really got into it with him about like how we found it. I'm sure that's really quite an interesting story as well. But um, I will say that most of the guys that I know um, that compete are pretty good anglers. Um, and I mean, um, if you go down the the list and have a look, um, I mean, even going back, like Steve Choate, amazing fisherman. Um, uh you know Greg Bensavinga Brian Styscoe I mean I don't know the list the list goes on um you know I've never fished with guys like James Chalmers in Scotland but I've seen all the pictures he's clearly a, a great angler Tommy always Tommy Archviesel always seems to be catching fish when I follow his Instagram uh Guyer Hansens another one so in my experience um yeah I I think a lot of the guys are 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 are, are good anglers um, and I think, um, yeah, no, I, I would say that most, uh, most are good anglers. Yeah. I mean, I don't, outside of Rory, pretty much everyone I know, uh, down there found, uh, spay casting, uh, from fishing. Um, but I do think there is probably a difference between casting and fishing. I think most of us would somewhat agree to that. Like you need to, to fish to cast or you need to cast a fish. I um, mean, there's certain certain places where a long cast is is pretty beneficial, um, but certainly you can over overcast fish too in a lot of situations. And um, I think that's the great thing about tournament casting for me is that outside of the Thompson, I didn't have a lot of places where a really long cast would 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 catch you a fish. Most places it was more detr- detrimental than a, a benefit. And 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 on the Thompson, there was certainly a lot of places too where those kind of casts weren't required and and maybe even would would catch you less fish if you weren't going to the right spots. Um so I think knowing when to 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 do it is good, but the great thing about uh the tournament casting is it gave me an outlet to cast far. Um so that I I wasn't doing that when I was fishing as much because before I went tournament casting, the only time I'd be casting, I'd be on the river and I'd be fishing. And, and so, you know, I'd get into the wide tail out and instead of fishing it kind of inside, I'd be like, oh man, I just, I just want to cast, see if I'm any better than last time. And I'm sure, I'm sure some of the people that fished behind me were pretty, were pretty stoked to have, have me do that. A lot of my friends caught fish behind me for sure, but it gave me an arena to do it so that I, I didn't, um, like I don't do it while I fish as much. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause while you were talking about all those, you know, you're listing off all those names, I totally yeah. agree. The best casters I know are all fantastic anglers, so I don't really know where it comes from. And, and the reason why I asked you is because I remember fishing with Steve Rajeff, and granted this is a single-hand thing, but I could tell that it was a soft spot for him as an angler that people have said to him before, though, but he can't really fish, he's more of a caster, but he's an exceptional angler. So I could just tell in listening to him speak that it was a bit of a soft spot, and I didn't know if you'd experienced anything like that.
2: I mean, you hear it all, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, but none of it matters, you know. It 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 really it's just um, you. Know, it's really it does it. You know it doesn't. Most matter. of the guys no, and and most of the guys. I mean, if anyone's interested, I'd say they're they're they are really good anglers for the most part. You know, I'm pr- I'm probably one of the least skilled anglers of that group. But I think a lot of those guys probably catch a lot more fish than I do. That's for sure.
1: So let's go back to, you know, what would this have been? 1015. I feel like in looking at my timeline it's about 15 years ago when I remember you going down to the Fraser River and focusing specifically on casting. Does that sound about right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I started competing in um it was 2010 or 2011. 2011. I think it was 2010. I think. So it's going back about, well, I guess 12, uh, this spring would be probably, I guess, 13 years. So yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty bang on. That was probably right about that. And I, and there was a couple of years before I went that I kind of thought to myself, Hey, you shouldn't go down there and, and have no practice. Maybe, maybe you should give it a shot. So uh, like just practice some before you go. Right. So Nothing could have prepared me. No, no amount of practice could have prepared me for what I saw when I went. But, um, but I, I definitely gave it uh, gave it a bit of practice before I went for sure.
1: Wait, so your first time ever at Spearama, you were competing. You didn't just go and check it out.
2: No, I, I went. I yeah, I went and <laughs> I went in there. Yeah, I, I just went right in. Yeah.
1: Okay, so, so how does it look? How do you register? Just the whole thing. Tell me the entire experience. I'm assuming you drove I, down with, with your, what's yeah. your wife's name? Le-
2: Lisa? Uh, Lisa, yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, you and Lisa would have
1: driven down. Okay, then yeah, what happens? We, we dro-
2: uh, yeah, so we drove down. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's a good story. So so uh, Bob Miser, uh, hello, Bob, if Bob's listening. Bob was the first uh, sort of guy to support me in the whole tournament thing. And so he he had made me a rod for going down there. And so, uh, and so he wa he was kind of like, man, like you, you got to drop by on your way through, if you're coming through Medford, uh, maybe stay the night. And, and, uh, and so I did, and, uh, we had a great time, um, you know, it was great to meet him and, and stay there. And he's such an awesome guy. And so, um, and so we went on from there and, and, and got down to San Francisco and, uh, you know, the, the, the club isn't super easy to find in the park, especially, Back then, I mean, we didn't have like the map on the phone and all the rest of it. So we were kind of driving around the park for a while and we, we finally figured out it was across from the bison paddock. So we went in there and, um, it's like, as you know, it's, it's just a really neat place. Like it, there's a, there's definitely a magical sort of feel to the whole thing. And there's the smell of like eucalyptus and their forest. Just it just smells different than ours. Later on, I found the eucalyptus, I found out the eucalyptus, they're invasive, believe it or not, but. Well, I guess that makes sense, but, um, a guy told me that, but just the smell and and everything. And I remember we parked in the parking lot and I didn't know what, uh, you know, what I was going to see, but I could kind of hear from the parking lot. Like when you're in the parking lot and you're getting out of your car and you're getting ready to go up, you can, if there's a lot of really good casters in there, you can kind of hear this, this like noise and that's people's rods coming forward and stopping. And, um. And so I I was like hearing that and I'm like, oh, wow, there's like, there must be a bunch of people down there. And so there's a, there's a path that goes, if you're in the parking lot, there's a path that goes sort of to the left and you go by the clubhouse, the proper, and you kind of come down to the ponds from there. And then there's a trail on the right or on the west side of the parking lot um, that leads to like more to the west side, to the west pond. And so I'm walking up the trail. And uh, I'm hearing all this stuff, and, and I'm kind of like wondering what I'm going to see. And I get up to the top. I'm almost to the top of the trail, and this leader comes flying down the trail, and this yarn sort of like lands at my feet. And, and so I just kind of stop. And I'm like, oh, man, like that's... um. Uh, like that's kind of weird a piece of yarn so then i take a few more you know the yarn starts getting retrieved away and i take a couple a couple more steps and uh and i get to the top of the trail and i can see a guy at the at the the far, the far end of the west pond who's cast all the way down the west pond and like down the trail a ways and as soon as i saw that i was like oh man like <laughs> back to the drawing board i definitely can't do that and so uh it was a good, you know, it, it, that was, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it wasn't intimidating too much. I mean, it, it is a little bit, but it wasn't too much because I've always been a pretty big fan of learning. So so I knew that I was going to uh, learn a lot. And um, I remember, too, that um, like Bruce Kroc, another another awesome dude, I was like pretty nervous about going in there for my first time. I think anyone probably will be. And, uh, he, he had the greatest advice, you know, we were kind of like waiting to go in and I think he could tell that I was like visibly nervous. And so, uh, he's just got such a great way. He walks up and he's like, uh, you nervous? And I'm like, yeah, I'm really nervous. And he's like, what for? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we're not going to win, man. Don't even worry about it. Like, you know what? That guy over there, he won last year and he's defending. And then those two guys got second, third, they're trying to get first. You don't even worry about it. Like, this is the mulligan. This is the one just go out and have fun. Right. And, uh, and that, like, as soon as he said that, like I, it was great because that's exactly what was going to happen. I, I knew from my week being there that, you know, it's no mystery. Your stuff's landing here. Their stuff's landing way over here. So you know that you're not gonna, you know, light the world on fire that first year. So as soon as he said that, I really relaxed and it it made the whole thing a lot more enjoyable. And then, uh, and then it just sort of went from there. I just, I just sort of kept going back.
1: How'd you do the first year?
2: I got four ths I got the first year. Yeah.
1: Are you serious?
2: Yeah. Not too bad. That's excellent. It wasn't bad for a first try for sure.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. So you said that Bob made you a rod. What's the difference between a standard, say 14 foot, eight weight steelhead rod and a competition rod?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, number one is just like the, the, uh, weight of the lines that they're meant to handle. So, um, typically your tournament lines are going to be, um, sort of in the range of like, let's say 980 grains up to, gee, 1150 or even more. Um, everyone's pretty, you know, pretty, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are sort of secret squirrel about what they're doing with their lines and and how heavy they are and how long they are. You can deduce a little bit of that from being observant when you're there but um but there's certainly guys that are on the long and heavy end of the spectrum and certainly guys that are on the shorter lighter end of the spectrum, but at the end of the day, they're grain weights that you're you're not seeing in in your typical um fishing rods. these would be like twelve weights um or even more um And, um, at Speyorama, there's a 15 foot one inch, um, maximum. So 15 feet, isn't that uncommon a rod. So, I mean, in length, they're, they're not too uncommon. I think, I think in the amount of grains they're, they're meant to, they're meant to, to throw they are. And you know, it's funny. I, I, I practiced with my tournament rods for so long that, um, I think I found them kind of heavy in the beginning um and then for a lot of years um it just didn't feel like like all the like it just I don't know it didn't feel as heavy I think that's because I practiced so much and then these last two years with the pandemic I haven't practiced at all and I got I had a good thing out with a tournament Rod and he wanted some pointers and I was like <laughs> this thing is heavy right so <laughs> so I, I'm gonna have to get back and fight in shape if I want to go back down there but I I guess after my last experience, I'd have to say, yeah, they're probably a little heavier than your typical rod, too. Um, yeah.
1: So how sp- how far does that line extend then? Eleven fifty—that's a huge amount of weight. Is it? What's the head? What's the head length on a typical competition line?
2: So the ones that um, that a lot of us use will be uncut around eighty feet, um, and I can't remember what they they weigh in at, but they're they're usually way over what what you need. And then what you do is you, you cut those lines from the back where they're thick until it gets to where you like it, basically. And most people are probably going to end up between like 69 and 74 feet. That's, that's, that's where a lot of folks end up with their lines. Um, and there certainly was a time where a lot of people were like, Gluing lines together and doing funny stuff because there wasn't as many tournament lines available. But the, by the time I got there, there was certainly a couple fishing line. Like my, my first tournament line was given to me by Steve Godshaw and that one was, um, definitely welded together from some different stuff. Um, and then I think the next year I bought a Karen 95 1112, which is, Uh, a really long heavy line. And I cut that one from the back till it got into that range. And then it wasn't long after that, that um, James Chalmers started his own company uh, and James, a long time competitor started his company Gale Force, and they came out with a, with a great uh, tournament line, which I used right from the beginning. And that one's 80 feet. And I can't remember how many grains to start with, but it's, it's gotta be like, maybe 1300 it's 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 up there and then I was always cut mine I was always a little bit on the shorter end of things so I I actually liked um like 69 to 71 feet like I liked it I liked it a little shorter and a little lighter um and so yeah so those lines were that that was kind of the beginning of like when I first got there we were you know the commercially available lines were kind of were kind of available I don't think you had to glue and splice and weld things together as much. And those lines, um, the taper on the front is sort of like what it is. And then the back of the line, there's a lot of like level heavy stuff. And so um, you're just cutting the level heavy stuff at the back to get things into uh, the length and weight that you, you want it to be. And then there's certainly folks out there that are taking pieces out of the middle and putting other pieces in and changing things. But I never did a lot of that. Um, I always use the Gale Force lines, although there's lots of good tournament lines out there. Lee Davidson, the ballistic one's great. Uh, Gene Oswald has his boss line. That's awesome. Um, I like the Gale Force one. Um, there's, there's great lines out there. I, I just gravitated to that one. It seemed to work well for me. Um, but yeah, um, you just sort of cut them until they're good and uh, that's going to be different for everyone I mean if if you're like me and like five foot ten um and my arms being the length they are you know it's possible that that you may like something shorter and if you're six foot six you may like something longer but I can't even really equate that to that because there's certainly people that are my size there or height that use longer lines than I've used in the past
1: Coming up, Tim and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to South Dakota for supporting this episode of Anchored. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now, for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. If you haven't already, check them out at huntthegreatestst.com. Can you explain to people listening, excuse me, how to splice a line?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't done a lot of that in a long time because um, for tournament casting, you don't need things to be really strong um, because you're not going to be having a fish pulling on it. So when I want to put a couple pieces of line together, what I do is I cut the two pieces of line on a really fine bias. So I I try and get like a long sort of like 30 degree angle on both of them and then I put super glue on either of them and I just stick them together. And then once it's once it's there, um I coat it all in super glue and I just sort of dab it on a paper towel and I let it dry. And that's not for fishing, but you know that that you can put a line together that way and if you're using it in a pond or or something like that you're going to be fine. Um when it came to core splicing, I did a little bit of that early on. And that involves sort of like, you get a pin, and you put it in the vise with the um. You see, this this is going back. So you put it in the vise with the point uh, in the fly tying vise, with the point facing forward. And what you do is is you you work it in. You know, you've got the the line you want to splice to. So you you try and work that needle point right into the core of that line, and you get it a couple inches in. And then you kind of bend the the line 90 degrees and push it and the needle comes through. So then it's been a while. So then what you do is, yeah, so you take it out of the vice and you get some dental floss and you put a loop of it in the needle and pull that through. And now you've got a loop sticking out the other way. And then, how did I do it again? I think it's the opposite way. You get the loop going through the other way. And then you have another piece of core that you strip. You put that into the the dental floss and you yank it through. Usually you coat it in super glue before you yank it through. And then you trim it and you coat the whole thing in super glue. And, um, And then I would actually go over the top of it with AquaSeal. And if you do that, you can hang off of that thing like if you do it right you can you just pull on it and it just never comes comes apart um but yeah it uh, i'm trying to think yeah you get the loop through then i think you put the other one in pull it through There's there's definitely instructions out there uh, you're making me reach back the animals no, the time on hard that too. way but,
1: but <laughs> it's You hard use to do dental while floss to
2: pull it through <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, but I've got, I've totally got a visual. I can see, I see what you mean. So you have to splice the core to be able to fish with it. You can't just super glue your line together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Now, speaking of line construction, you've gone ahead and started your own fly line company.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. Bridge.
1: And and I yeah. was actually reading the about before I hopped on the call with you because I've known about Bridge. And obviously, I just because it's you, I trust the lines. But I thought, well, I should just read a little bit, of, you know, why that he named it Bridge. Sure. I love the story behind it. Can you tell people the story behind Bridge and what it stands for, all that fun stuff?
2: Yeah, um, we did a lot of brainstorming. <laughs> like, I agon- everything I do, I agonize over it um, and the name and the logo were no exception to that. Um, there was a lot of different names that were thrown around and I would ask everyone and one, and, and, you know, it's so funny. It's, it's when you're asking people what the name of a company is going to be, um, doesn't matter. There's always going to people that look at you with like a scrunched up look on their face and they, they don't get it. And then, um, and then there'll be people like man, that's awesome, right? So you get you get sort of the 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 full sort of spectrum. Um, but one night we were in the shop here, and my buddy Zach came in, and I think Aaron was working at the time too. My buddy my buddy Aaron Goodis, who shoots all the photos for the brand and does all the videos for the brand. And, um, we were just, again, you know, I was hassling everyone about the name, what the name of this thing was going to be. And, and we were just sort of throwing stuff away and it started with Spence's bridge. Cause we were like, ah, oh, wouldn't it be cool? Like Spence's bridge line company or like something like that. And then, and then we were kind of like, ah, oh, I know, but the Thompson, like, yeah, it's closed and everything and, and not everyone's going to get it and this and that. And then, and then, uh, I can't remember which of the three of us said it It was just like, what about bridge? And and we didn't even really go into it too much. And so, so everyone left and, I don't know, just sort of stuck. And then I thought about it over a couple of days and then um, you read their website. I mean, the more the more that I thought about it, the more that it really made sense um, that, you know, yeah, bridges are just they're like a, a lot of the things that I wanted my company, like a, a lot of things that I wanted my company to be could be, you know thought of it in bridge terms you know when i first started i i made my first line was my main stem which was my long one and i i wanted that to be a modern take on a traditional line and so bridges can be thought of you know symbolic of going from the past into the future um they can be symbolic of of technology in nature they can you know which a line is as well when you're casting a line like that into the water it's it's modern technology being used in nature um there's strength connotations you know bridges are meeting points they're put-ins they're takeouts they're they're just yeah i mean they they're they're the past or the future and they're they're like every not every but most iconic rivers that you're gonna fish have an iconic bridge over it and and a lot of us use those bridges as context we're talking about where we're going to meet people or where we're going to go or what we're going to do right um you know and not every every river has an iconic bridge over it but but enough of them do that's for sure and so like the more i thought about it the more it just made sense and uh and so we we just went with it. We just kind of went with it for sure, and and, it, and it's it's a good fit, I think. It is what it is. Yeah, it I is love now. it.
1: And you're <laughs> cool. you're bridging the gap. I mean, I, I know for me yeah, that sure. And I'm not just saying this. I'm intimidated by long lines, and when the time comes for me to go and get a longer line, I'm going to come and get one of your lines because I know oh, that you <laughs> will absolutely put a modern spin on it. So b- before I start asking you questions about how you started the company and what that even looks like as far as sourcing. What do you mean by putting a modern or having a modern take on a maybe more traditional line? Can you explain to us what a traditional line would look like and maybe the complications of that and how you are looking to maybe make it easier for people?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the long lines of my past um, are not the long lines of the super long ago past. So by the time, by the time I started spay casting, uh, wait forward commercially available lines were already out there. Um, but my first run-ins with long lines were the Scientific Angler Mastery Spay, uh, the Mid-Spay, the Grand Spay, the XLT. Um, they were sort of the legendary long heads of, of my day. And when I first started, I, I didn't start with lines like that. You know, the Wind Cutter and the Delta were out at that point. You know funny enough, we consider those long today, but back in yeah. those days, um guys make fun of you for using them right so um yeah, so those lines were modern at the time, but when I think about when I think about line design and I think about what you know in my time and my context, what would have been considered traditional, those would have been it, and so the lengths are really kind of you know pre- previous i should say previous to all the 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 um the long lines uh or sorry the the wait forward lines a lot of people use double tapers that was pretty common um and so i i have double tapers now that I, I i do definitely throw around for fun uh but um they we were past that era by the time i kind of got involved and so um to me the long lines of the past um they just didn't have that how yeah i i guess when I think about a modern twist that has to do with my time in tournament casting. So when I went to, when I went to tournament casting, I had cast long lines that I had done. I I wasn't super good at it, but I had done it. And um, when I went down there and I started casting tournament lines right from the very first one, um, I knew that this was like a race car. Like like what I had had before um, was a great fishing line, but the lines that I've encountered over the decade or however long it's been in me competing, um, they just took that stuff and turned it on its head, you know? Like I was just really wowed by the amount of line speed and efficiency these things had. And so that really made me take a step back and go like, whoa, these are, these are next level, right? and um and i think um you know through explorations of tournament lines and tournament casting you get really curious about what makes the line feel that way and so you you go on this exploration of of trying to figure out why the line does what it does and um and you start seeing design differences it, for me, it it I started graphing the lines. So so I would you know measure them, and my my really good buddy James Reed, uh, maker of bamboo rods in Vancouver Island, you, you know he was the one that showed me how to measure a line and 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 put it on a graph and look at it right. And um and so I started doing that. And of course, if you do that to a whole bunch of lines, um from both the past and the present and stuff you like and even some stuff you don't like. Um, you're gonna notice some differences for sure. And um you notice some stark differences in some of the tournament stuff. And so the idea was just, you know, like a lot of these great companies like um like Boss or Nextcast or Gale Force or Ballistic, um, those those tournament uh developments that make those lines turbocharged sort of tr- like they trickle down into the everyday drivers, the fishing stuff, right? And so for me, it was it was more about that that traditional length, but with modern, uh, modern energy. If that makes sense, like a like a level of line speed and turnover and distance potential that I didn't see in some of those older lines that I fished.
1: Right. Okay. And I am going to pick your brain more about this later because I've got a bunch of real nerdy questions for you, but we'll <laughs> save those for later. Sure. How did you do this? I mean, you don't just walk down the street to the local fly line factory. How did you get started? I, I know you can't share too many secrets, but...
2: I can share lots. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I had, you know, James had showed me, you know, how to how to measure a line, how to look at it, how to put it on a graph and see the shape of it. And then I had been in the industry for a while from before that. So I had a big sort of like, I don't know, I guess it was a bit of like just meant to be because I never threw any spay line I ever owned out, no matter how cracked or destroyed or if I didn't like it, it just went all into this drawer. And um, and so I, I, um, I had this drawer full of spay lines and then all the stuff that I was using currently and so I just started graphing everything and, um, and just looking at all of it and trying to figure out why things did what they did. Um, and I'm not sure I figured that out even now. I certainly have a ton to learn and the designs I've, I've done, I've, I've really liked them, but even I'm like, sometimes a little unsure about how I got there. Um, I think there's still a, a lot of like unexplained things for me in, in, in fly line design. Um, but I know I like what I've designed and I just keep, I just keep whacking away at it until I get something that I really like. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it kind of started, I wanted something a little on the longer side, um, something that, you know, it wasn't too overpowered. It didn't, it wouldn't have like a really overt weight sort of feel to it. I wanted it to have, I wanted it to hearken to, to those turn or to those traditional lines, but but also have a very modern feel to it. So I I just started playing around with stuff and and um and basically I glued a line together. I mean that's how it started. So before when I was telling you about how I cut the lines on a bias and I glue them together, um that's how I make that's how I make every one of my lines when I when I design them. So what I do is I I get on a graph and I, I design the shape of the line. And, um, and then I go into my line library. So, all these old lines that I have, and, and, and it's grown like all my friends now that know that I do this. They're like, I got an old line for you. I got an old line. So, I'm getting lines. Even Ryan was doing some spring cleaning at the Surrey shop, our other location, and he found like four XLTs. So, they're, they, he sent them over to me. And so, so what I do is I, I basically go out, and get on my graph, and every foot, if I can, um, Uh, I find what I need, you know, I I figure out I need it to taper from 0.45 to 0.46, let's say over a foot. Well, I go through with a caliper through lines and I find that piece and I cut it out and I label it and I put it aside with a number on it. And then I I go foot by foot and I find every single piece that I need. And then I cut them all in a bias and I super glue them all together. And so And so then what you have at that point... (laughs) is a line full of glue, which surprisingly doesn't matter as much as you think it would. Um, but you have something that you can take down to the river and cast. And, um, it's really like, especially now with, with supply chains being the way they are, it's, it's really hard. For major manufacturers, which are the people making your lines, if you have a little line company like this, to find uh, a lot of time to do a ton of prototypes. So this is a really great way for me to make sure that something is at least viable before I, I go to my producer and say, hey, could, could you make a sample? And I can do a lot of tweaking, sort of cutting pieces out, putting pieces in, get back on the graph, look at the shape again, uh, go down to the river, cast it again. And then when I get something pretty close to being workable, um, you, 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 you approach the supplier. Um, and so for me, uh, finding the supplier, I found a great supplier. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say it, but, um, scientific anglers, my supplier, a bunch of great guys down there. Um, Jeff Pierce, Josh Jenkins, two of my favorite people. Uh, you know, everyone else working there. I'm wonderful too. Th- those, those guys are my, my guys wonderful people making wonderful products. And certainly I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And uh, Dave Yeager, uh, who works for Al Humor, and they're kind of our local SA guys. Uh, they really opened that door to me. And Dave was just coming into the shop, doing the rep thing and was asking me about, cause I I'm never like too quiet about this kind of stuff. So he was like, Oh, what have you been up to? And I'm like, Oh, I want to get these lines made. I think I want to do a line company. And he was like, Well, would you have you ever thought about maybe getting them done at our place? And I was like, Oh, you guys do that. And and anyway, like I really like Jeff right away and, and it just sort of went from there and and uh and so then I had a supplier. And so, um, you know, they've been really good with, with, with been patient with me with all my questions. I mean, I'm I'm learning as I go, just like anybody, right? So I think I just found the perfect uh producer with with just wonderful people. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I don't know, it just sort of all fell into place. It, it started with just a really genuine interest in, in how fly lines work. And I think that just stemmed from a really genuine want your like need to learn more about casting and lines, uh, which stemmed from, from tournament casting or came from that. So that's just sort of how it all happened. Um, but yeah, just, it just sort of seems to have been meant to be. It just seems to keep going. So, so it's well, good. Um,
1: they, they would have known, obviously, that you had a mega potential because that can't just be an open invitation to any Joe Blow. You know, obviously, they had faith and, and confidence in you, which is huge. So, rock on, SA. I'm impressed. What about materials, cores and plastic coatings and all of that stuff? Uh, is there one set core nowadays, or do you have your choice between different materials?
2: No, I just go with, their, uh, with the standard freshwater core, which is, I think, a 30-pound uh Dacron core and uh I let the experts over there figure figure that stuff out um and I just work on the tapers and and that's it I, I bet you, you probably could really get out of the box with densities and and um you know different additives and stuff but uh but the materials that they use are just they're so great as they are and and the performance and of the lines has been so spectacular that I I really haven't had any questions to you about it so, that's good i guess
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i think a lot of those guys are pretty quiet about how those lines are made so i'd love to hear any if any of those guys want to talk about it i'd love to hear about it
2: yeah i um, imagine there's probably some trade secrets involved. i have no idea but uh i send them the tapers they send me the lines It's it's been pretty good so far <laughs>
1: what about the whole skin thing did they give you the option i know it's irrelevant really with spay casting but did they mention that to you the textured lines
2: no i think it is just irrelevant in spay casting so just never something i touched on so um, on that
1: note do your lines have a loop-to-loop to their running line or are they integrated
2: they're loop-to-loop yeah they're loop-to-loop
1: what's your what's um, your philosophy on that
2: um you know what i think it is i think Here in the Northwest, I think a lot of people um, started spay casting with heads. And so I've been working in the shop sort of long enough that I was around at the shop when when Skagit lines came out. And I often refer, I think it was around 2006 or 2007 that first Rio original sort of um, Skagit line came out. And I always like talk about that and I kind of call it like the Skagit revolution because. Up until that point, um, spay casting was like something you didn't see very often. Um, and a lot of people would try it and be like, oh man, this is this is really hard, right? Um, and so when the Skagit line came out, <clears throat> like, I'm not even sure if I'd be sitting here if the Skagit line came out, you know? Um, so many people, like, it just opened up an entire world. Spay casting exploded when Skagit lines came out. I don't think anyone can deny, deny that. And so, Outside of the very first virgins versions, versions, we've all known Skagit heads to be shooting heads, and so I think here in in the Pacific Northwest in particular, but probably in a lot of places in the world, we identify um spay lines as being heads um certainly in other there's there's people who don't, and there's places where they still do a lot of integrated stuff, and there's certainly benefits and drawbacks to either of those systems. But for me, um, I always liked heads. Um, and that probably just stems from spending so much time with heads and, you know, I was never a person really to, to, to grab one line system and be like, well, this is it. And if, you know, like why would you fish anything else? This is the only thing you should fish. Why would you do this? And why would you do that? I really wanted to learn about everything So I, I, I tried a little bit of everything. Um, and at that time with Scandi and Skagit heads, that's what was going on. And so I wanted to, to know as much as I could about that stuff and, and fish a lot of it. And, and of course, so for me, like spay lines just became sort of like heads. And then when I got into the tournament world, they obviously they're using heads there too. So when I started sort of buying, you know, when I sort of got more interested in some of this more, more modern long belly stuff and started buying like next cast lines, those were all heads. Um, And so, yeah, it just seemed, yeah, I just saw the benefits of heads and, and um, I see for me more benefits than, than drawbacks and the lines I made, it was a really selfish endeavor. They were the ones that I wanted and I wanted them to be heads. So, yeah. So that's what they've been
1: <laughs> I can't argue that what yeah. about the running line? Do you guys sell a running line
2: uh, yeah, I'm working on it i actually i've got i've got a running line coming I've got a shooting line coming and it's a mono shooting line It's gonna be i think forty two pound so that's coming down I don't know i still i still have a bit of testing to do and have a look at it but i've I've got a source on that and uh and I tested uh some samples and they were really good so I've got someone something coming uh coming down the 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 barrel on that. Nothing here yet, but certainly uh in the works for sure. And uh and and coming coming soon, I hope.
1: How do you stop a mono line from coiling without having to stretch it out all the time?
2: Oh. Um well you gotta stretch it. The, number one, you gotta stretch it. Um I mean I, I just some I mean it's how it's I think a lot of times it's how much you use it. Um and what kind of reel you're storing it on. So I love those old, antique, hardy reels. I'm one of those guys. And so, you know, the arbors are pretty small on them. So after that thing sat for a for, you know, a few months and it's like the first one in the fall and you're you're yanking that thing off the reel on a crisp fall morning, it's looking a lot like a, a slinky. Um but I find, you know, you just live with it for, for a couple hours and, and just give it a good stretch, right? And 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 away you go. And as far as tangling goes, um, which is different, I guess, than the coils, but a lot of people find coils lead to tangling. Um, just hold hold loops properly. Uh, I made a video about it. <laughs> you can watch it. I, I made it for you, April. So, <laughs> and uh, Aaron, yeah, Aaron filmed it. So yeah. So um. <laughs> Thank you for so that. yeah. No, absolutely. So um, just holding them uh, properly. You know, just just doing the things you can do to make sure they don't tangle but at the end of the day um you gotta stretch it the longer it sits on a reel the more stubborn it can be um but i will say that the ones that are out there today seem to be a lot better than the ones i originally encountered um so i find i give it a pretty good stretch um and it seems to it seems to be okay the stuff's pretty good out there these days seems
1: yeah, no doubt. Now, we've just started doing this on video as well, the, the podcast, I mean. So yeah. now that I can see you, and people will be able to see you if they go to the YouTube version, can yeah. I bug you to go through some casting steps and tips?
2: Sure. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to do that. Absolutely.
1: Okay, so the drift. Obviously, right. with, with the Skagit cast, I mean, most people listening at this point know, typically short line, short stroke, long mm-hmm. line longer extended stroke. So mm-hmm. with the gadget line, obviously it's a pretty short, compact stroke. And so a lot of anglers, uh, probably myself included for a while there, really cut ourselves short. Now, what about, we were talking about you just the other day, actually, about casting really oh. long lines. <laughs> and we were talking about what your drift would look like in a, say that you were casting, you said you like a 72 foot long head.
2: Can in tournament, you, sure. Yeah.
1: Sure. Can you, while we're sitting here and I can see you, we can see you. Mm -hmm. Can you show us the difference with your arms and your hands on a Skagit line versus a 72 foot long head?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm just going to turn my body here sideways so you can see it. Um, So with a Skagit head, generally my hands would be right down around here. With a longer line, I'm probably up around here. And if you want, like... There's lots of video evidence of my horrible casting over the years because they, they film that thing down there. So, so if you watch me early on, I'm like this. I've got my hands oh. like way, like behind my head. And like, I don't know how I was able to cast so far with, with some of the stuff I was doing. Um, but nowadays I try and keep my hands in front. Um, right about here. And, and if I drift up, I, I try not to get t- too much higher than about here. And, um, the reason is, is I find that, um, the more the bend comes out of this elbow as you come up, um, the less you're able to sort of use, um, I, if I had to put it, like if if I had a piece of drywall here and I was trying to put the bottom of my fist through it, I'd be a lot more powerful here than I am when this arm straightens out, I lose a lot of energy there. This isn't as an, a good a place to generate um, a straight line and good acceleration down. Down here is, um, and so the other thing that that can happen is if you get too high and this arm straightens out, you almost actually lose the ability to draw a straight line, and if and you start just actually bringing, you have nowhere to go but down. Essentially, instead of instead of straight. So for me, I I like um, I like I don't like to get this too straight. Maybe about there would be the highest, um, but I like to have some bend in my elbow for sure.
1: So for people listening who aren't watching right now, Tim's talking about his elbow and it's extended out and it's still got bend in, in it, not just extended. Cause if obviously if you lift up higher, it's going to straighten out and you're going to lose some strength. So when yeah. you come back though, so you've now just say you've just formed your D loop. Sure. So even, even at the height of your back cast. So at, at the very peak of your back cast, you're still, mm-hmm. you still have your hands that far ahead of your face.
2: All, oh yeah. Hands in front. That was another hard one to learn. It took me a long time to learn that one, but you, you watch every great guy, Travis, Gerard, Tommy, hands in front. Yeah. Hands in front. That's, that's key for sure. Um, you know, through my exploration of the whole thing and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm right. I mean, there's still a lot of things that are, that are up in the air for me. Like I'm learning like everyone else. Um, every day I try and learn something about casting, get better. But my observations have been that when your hands are in front, um, number one, I find your anchor lands in a better place. So when you really jack your arms back in, in behind, um, that can really direct your anchor in perhaps a different place than you'd want it to be. Um, and generally for great casting, I want my anchor well in front of me. Okay. Um, less behind, more in front, both for fishing and for distance. Um, now when it comes to, I mean, um, the way you're going to apply the energy, the more that you push your hands back, the more you're probably going to drop your rod tip. So by keeping the hands in front like this, the rod tip stays much more upright. And so my observations through video is that if you get the rod super flat in the back cast, the rod doesn't really bend against the line until it gets probably about to... Eleven o'clock at the earliest, and then it's upright enough that that the line starts pushing on it. but when it's flat like this the the line is sort of here, and the rod's here, and it, it's sort of coming up, and it's not your rod's not applying energy, it's not applying tension to the line just yet, so if you get really back and flat or or even worse down, from here to here is actually just wasted your slack's getting into the line right there. So for me, what I've found just by watching some of the videos that, I, that I've made of myself that when I come back to here and I keep my hands in front like this, the very first motion that I make forward begins applying tension to the line. There's no, there's no, there's no, lo- there's no wasted movement, right? And there's, there's less slack getting into the line because of it.
1: Okay, two things. I just saw something there. Okay. Because I was going to ask how, if you cut yourself short, I'm just thinking about physics and timing and how that would work, Mm -hmm. but I saw you start to rotate your body. So are you maintaining your hands in this position, but utilizing your body to be able to complete your circle and, and your loop?
2: Yeah, that's a big, that's a huge part of like, that's like a whole different fundamental of casting that I learned through tournament casting. And that's, um, that's essentially, using your body more than your arms and just understanding that your arms are a variable. And so the way I like to think about casting, and I, I kind of, there's an instructor named Robert Gillespie and he's from Ireland. And so when I first started getting into tournament casting, I, I started um, obviously Googling everything I could and I hadn't been down there yet. And I, I came across his, his webpage and it, it was called Casting Matters, which is this, Awesome, awesome name for a website. And so he, he you know, he had worked with a, with a really great caster named Andrew Toft uh, from Scotland as well. And, um, you know, he had just alluded to in his teachings that the rod, you know, a lot of people sort of cast with their arms and the rod's just along for the ride. And then there was a whole different mentality of thinking of the rod as a tool Setting the tool at the angle you want it to work at, and then locking your up your arms, rotating your body, and letting the the tool do what it was what it's meant to do. Right. Um, so in the style that I like to use, um, you know, my a lot of lift people lift when they lift they do a shotgun lift, so they they lift like this. So it's kind of what most of us have been taught to do. Whereas Just so people listening know,
1: we're we're talking lifting at but at the very start of the cast, not lifting in your drift or anything.
2: Right, totally. Initial lift, Sorry. very very beginning of any cast, and I'm going to use a single spay as an example. Um, so that initial lift is is kind of like a shotgun for most folks right here, and then as as you would come around, you'd kind of rotate your body and sweep your arms around like this into position, and then go from there. But of course, whenever you're rotating your body, like, or sorry, when you're using your arms like that, um, there can be dips, and you can cut corners, and you can you can drop your rod tip back here, and there's there's all kinds of things that can happen. Um, And so, the style that I kind of learned was instead of lifting like a shotgun, you actually square the rod across your body this way. So I drop it down to my to my arms. And now the the rod is facing out into the river instead of straight down. And so then the way I lift is actually curl. I curl my arms up in front of me like this, like a barbell curl arm almost. And you'll notice that my two hands are in line with my shoulders. So I'm not lifting out like this or like this. These two hands are in line with my shoulders. And my top hand's going to come about eye level. And my lower hand is probably on about a... A 45, I've got about a 45 degree tilt on the rod. If this was 90 and this was zero, probably about 45. Okay. And so I've got about a 90 degree bend in my arm right there. And this is where I like to lift to. And so at this point, when I get to the apex of that lift, I'm going to start rotating my body. Right. And so what I like to do is in this case, I'm casting with my right hand up the rod So I'm going to point my right foot forward. My right foot is going to be forward and it's going to be pointing at the target. And what that right foot being forward is going to do is it's going to restrict the amount of rotation I can do. So if I have my left foot forward, I can rotate so far past where I want to go. But if I use that right foot forward and it's pointing towards the target, it cuts me off. It it makes it so I can only rotate basically to the point that my two hands are in line with his leg. And so... Now I've got my right foot forward pointed at the target. I've lifted up my arms like this right here. And now I'm ready to rotate my body. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rotate my body and keep my arms locked. Okay, right to here. Now I'm going to lock my arms and turn back. Does this look familiar? This is a really good firing position. So I want you to see that there's no difference between the, the firing position and where I had have, have you lift to. So the lift becomes the firing position and the firing position is the lift, right? And so what that does is it takes a ton of errors out of casting. We're not talking about you dropping your rod tip anymore. We're not talking about your hands being in front. We're not talking about cutting corners. We're not talking about dipping your rod tip. We're not talking about anything but keep your arms still and turn your body. And so with a short line, when I when I lift to here and I lock my arms and I rotate to be in line with this right foot, I'll have my hands down here. But with a long line, when I come around and get to here, this isn't high enough. So once my rotation's finished, I do bring my arms up a little bit, right? And that just, you know, Helps accommodate that longer that longer line. You need a little bit more height, right? Um, and so that can be applied to a lot of different casts. So if you want to do a parry poke, you might lift, come around, dump the line, then lift like this, lock your arms and turn, and fire forward. Snap T or circle spay or C spay or whatever you call it. Up and under, up and lock, turn to face cast so there's there's a lot of um like it's it, that that whole style that i learned through tournament casting I, got, I guess maybe we got pretty far away from where we started this whole thing <laughs> but, but but uh that that's really changed the way i cast and the way i teach and and um and it's made a big difference for a lot of people that i teach to um big
1: time so i mean just yeah. the amount of errors that it removes is beneficial in yeah itself. for sure but, and i mean less injuries there's a ton of reasons why it makes sense sure. But what about with short lines then? Would you just do that same thing but with a shorter body movement?
2: Yeah, or a uh, lower hands, right? Lower hands. So All if right. I want my firing position to be down here, say I'm using like an OPST commando head or something, well then I only lift to here because then by when I turn, that's my firing position. But with a, lo- a longer line, I may want my hands to well I'm going to probably drift for a longer line, so that's going to happen after my rotation, but to get a, a 70 plus foot head to turn the corner, initially I'm going to have to lift higher to get more line off the water before I turn, right? So, right. if you if you watch some of the like now that I've passed that on to you, if if you watch a lot of the tournament videos, you'll see that style. That's like you'll 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 see that. It it's something that uh That's pretty prevalent for sure. Um, This is
1: great. So you utilize a closed stance then?
2: I do. Yeah, I do.
1: With the single hand casting in the tournament world, do they have a closed stance? No, they're usually open, right?
2: I don't know. I I think uh, that's something I've never done. I know for me, when I I single hand cast, I like an open stance because I like to be able to look at my back cast pretty easily. So that's how I do it. Um, I find if I stand closed, it can be hard to look at it. But I'm sure... I mean there's guys that spay cast in tournaments with 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 open stance that do really well. But for me, because I know I'm gonna screw up, I I want the most uh parachutes, exit plans, safety plans, whatever you wanna call it, um, that I can have. And so, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion a long time ago that if I'm competing it's going to be a bad day of casting. So the least I could do is make it easy on myself and do it the easiest way I know how. So, That's,
1: that's good. That's a good motto. And then my, my second question about all of that is that, because I would have assumed that you had to have your hands farther back, not behind your head, but certainly closer to your ear. Mm-hmm. Because to allow for uh, an obviously, you know, wider trajectory, because obviously if you have too short of a stroke, then you're going to end up with concave and the rest of that yeah, disaster. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. where is your forward cast? But I guess if you're, even though your hands are here, if your raw tip is still pointing yeah. back, where's your forward yeah. cast going?
2: S- straight. So the, the, the rod's an amplifier, right? So for straight, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, stra- that just straight if classic. we can, hopefully. <laughs> but- yeah. Uh, um, so for me to get my rod back to where I need it to be, I don't need my, my hands to be behind me. Right. And this is mm-hmm. a really hard thing for me to learn. Um And you'll see, you'll see too, like everyone's got varying degrees of it. Right. But, um but for me, this is where I like to be. And the, the more in front my hands are, the better a cast I get. And so my cast coming from here is hopefully like this right here. Right. So you're so, still,
1: so you still have a bend in your arm then. So, uh, right hang on. so are you controlling the trajectory and controlling how far back that rod tip goes with your bottom hand?
2: Um, Yeah, that's definitely, absolutely. So um, if, if my lower hand is in like this, obviously the rod's going to be straight right if i if i have my arm or my lower hand extended that's got more of um it's got a probably a better angle for trajectory uh, right there um so yeah you never want your firing position to be too upright because if you're at noon there's just there's nowhere to go but down and then usually you're going to because your stroke length's been cut in half you're probably going to apply the energy in a very abrupt sort of fashion and that obviously a downward trajectory and a tailing loop. That's about as far as a cast can fall, no. right? So, so, <laughs> yeah. so having, you know, I, I like the thought of sort of like ten to two. The same thing that we teach in in in, you know, I was saying eleven before, but probably it's probably around ten o'clock or so that that it, it kind of somewhere back in here, right? I don't stand yeah. in the clock vase very but, often. But so <laughs> I'd
1: say it's two. I'd say it's two o'clock for sure.
2: Sure, sure. Ten and two, same sort of deal for sure. Um, but yeah, when I'm out, I'm out here and I'm in front, when I have this, this lower hand all the way extended, I, I'm getting the angle that I, I need. And then the great thing about having this lower hand extended is you get a really long path to pull that lower hand in and apply energy. So a lot of people, they have a firing position where it's in like this. And people always say, Low, use your lower hand. But if you just have this little, this, you've got nowhere to go. So by getting this out, like in the best guys, they get it way out. They get it straight and just boom, right? They get the full the full draw on the entire thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. I wish that I, I know there's some people listening right now who can't see it and they're probably cursing me. But um where are we at? <laughs> so when you're watching the episode or when you go to look it up on YouTube, just skip to around oh, an hour and ten and it should bring you there. Um can people book you for lessons now still?
2: yeah for sure. um pretty easy to find. I mean, if you go to the bridge website, um you certainly can just use the contact form there. I'm the guy answering the emails I see all of them. so if you're looking for a lesson, please feel free to reach out and uh, i I teach uh, all the time so uh, always when's your teaching. next workshop?
1: Cause th- sorry to cut you off. this is gonna be live mm. in a couple of weeks. When's your next workshop?
2: Um, I don't have anything group planned at the moment. I just do a ton of um like a ton of private lessons. And, yeah, um, but I do, I, I do like group lessons too. Um, they're just, they can be hard, I guess, to the last couple of years with COVID and you, you know, you can't have a group thing and this and that, I'm probably going to have to get more into a mindset of, of, of doing that. I've been out to Calgary a couple times since the whole thing's turned Josh, your, your friend, Josh, my friend, Josh, Nugent, great guy out fly fishing outfitters in Calgary. He definitely brings me out a couple times a year to, to do group schools there. And I usually go once in the spring and once in the sort of late summer to get the all our Alberta friends in, in shape to go to the Skeena uh, and and fish for steelhead, um, or do trout spay on the home rivers. But uh, but yeah, no, I I I don't do a ton of big schools. Uh, I I like to work with people one on one. That tends to be the the way I prefer to do it. But certainly do schools as well. But
1: no, it's the best. All right, and how can people find you, Tim?
2: Uh yeah, I mean I'm I'm. I'm, uh, I guess the, the website number one, and then this is pretty bad. I'm actually gonna have to look at my phone. on un-
1: Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I, I tried looking up your, cause I was like, is it, is it six M's or four Y's? I was trying to find a Timmy. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it's, it was it's gone. It's gone.
2: Yeah. I just never, I didn't use it. I just didn't update it. I just didn't, it was just a thing in life that didn't have to be there. And so, I took it away and so now it's bridge underscore 116.2. And that's, that's the, um, that's the, uh, that's sort of the, the thing. And if you're wondering, I get this question a lot. If you're wondering what the 116.2 is, um, the logo has a bridge in it and, uh, it looks a lot like any, any BC sort of famous train bridge. Um, but, in particular, that bridge is the bridge over the telqua on the on the bulkley and so, when I first started with the idea of bridge, I didn't have anyone to help me with my logo, so I ran down to the library and I got like you know eight books on classic logo design and then i I got Illustrator on my computer, and I didn't know what I was doing and i I watched some YouTube videos and so I was looking for, I want, I knew I wanted a bridge and I knew I couldn't draw one. So I found this picture of the Telqua bridge and I just traced it. And, uh, and so, um, anyway, um, later on, my really good buddy, John MacArthur, uh, who did, who did my packaging and did the logo as well. He, um, he kind of tweaked the logo. And so what he found out was when you go to the bridge in Telqua there's a CN number stamped into it and it's 116.2. So that was that's why it's on the package that's why it's in the name. That's sort of the bridge that that started the whole logo and 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 everything. So that's the little easter egg. I I got tons of tons of questions so I figured I maybe I should clear the air while I'm while I'm, while I'm here with you. Get that out of the oh, way.
1: I, I love it. And I love that bridge. So that's, that's super cool. I'll never drive over it the same way again. Now no, I see you it. Go.
2: Yeah, totally. You see the numbers if you go over it, right? So it's there. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, look, I know you're at the shop. That's the other thing. Can people still find you at Michael and Young?
2: Yeah, I'm here all the time. I'll, almost never In, not at here. At the Vancouver...
1: The Vancouver Correct, yeah. location. Yeah. Don't go to Surrey; will they'll be yeah. so disappointed.
2: <laughs> no, they get Ryan. That's great too. Yeah,
1: I know he's Cat, great too. But if they went looking yeah, for you yes. and they drive an hour? Well, out. I,
2: yeah, if you were looking for me, then yeah, yeah, you've got Catherine and Ryan over there right now. So that that's that's a good that's a good place to be too. No question.
1: Yeah, either location, you'll let you'll end up in good hands.
2: You're in good all hands. Right, either last, play or go.
1: <laughs> I'll link all this, but just for people listening, if they wanted to check it out right now, what's the website?
2: Yeah, www.bridgeoutfitting.com. Well, wait a minute. Let me just double check. This <laughs> is so it. bad. Oh, I'm such an idiot. I okay. will link
1: everything. <laughs> but it's just... it's No, so, it's it such is. A... It's, bridge, it's
2: bridgeoutfitting.com. No. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's actually the name. Yeah.
1: I love it, Tim, because you are really... This truly is. This isn't like you're some crazy cutthroat businessman who's trying to cash on the, in on this you really are so genuine and so pure and I just think that I think it's a perfect fit I'm I'm honestly very proud of you I'm I'm excited oh, to well, try one of
2: these lines coming, means a lot coming from you and and uh you know when when I ordered all these lines to begin with you know it's it's always like this moment of horror when when you 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 actually pay for everything and it shows up and I remember dragging these boxes of lines into into the house, and and Lisa looking at me like, "What the, what the hell?" And I open the box, and there's just like, you know, eight hundred thousand grains of spay lines in one of these boxes. And so I'm I'm looking at it, and I look up at her, and I go, "Well, if people don't buy them." I'll never buy a spay line again. I, I'm good for life at this point. Right? <laughs> we can't lose. We're going to save spay, spay line money forever at this point. So
1: <laughs> are, are shops buying them? Are, I mean, in America, yeah. are the shops buying yeah. them?
2: Oh, yeah. They, they go all over. I sell, I've sold a lot of lines in Japan. Uh, lots in the States. Um, Emerald, Emerald waters. Angling is my dealer in the U S. Um, and Dave's a great guy up here. I've got uh Robinson's of Victoria, Michael and young, obviously sea run, flying tackle. Um, we've got um, Josh outfish out fly fishing outfitters in Alberta. Then I've got flymart.ca Scott Curry out in Ontario. And, um, yeah, between, between those guys, like they're shipping lines all over. So that's, that's been, been pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward, look well, looking forward to continuing working with those guys. And, and I'm just really lucky to have such a, a, a fantastic sort of network of, of dealers. Oh, Oscars and Smithers. How could I forget? uh, uh you know, Alex at Oscars, wonderful guy, you know, can't say enough about all the, all the folks that, uh, that have supported me on this, on this journey. Certainly, uh, certainly it, it couldn't have happened with, 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 without them and the great folks at SA and, you know, James showing me how to, how to, how to measure lines and Aaron taking pictures and John with logos and just my buddy Zach with his input and in art. And it's just been, uh, I've just been super lucky to be surrounded by just such a, a great group of folks, um, and talented too. I mean, certainly I, I'm really lucky to have friends that are good at stuff. <laughs> and, and and we've we've had a lot of fun doing this thing together. It's been great, right? So so it's been awesome. I love it.
1: All right. Well, we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much for coming to the uh on the show and enjoy your travel home. What time is it there?
2: Uh it Almost is 7:43. Uh so it's not too late. I still got dinner All to right. cook, but that's okay. We'll make it. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm I'll I'll whip something up quick.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Tim.
2: Thank you, April. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that concludes
1: this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when I sit down with Dan Rooster-Levins.